Okay. This morning, our Bible reading is from Matthew, and it's chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. That's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, light your, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tori. Thank you. Service. That's great. Let me just reiterate just about um, the giving. We take really seriously being good stewards, the elders do, of our giving. And so um, you may think, oh, well, you know, my giving won't count in there. Like we give to the dollar, we budget to the dollar what people indicate or come in. We don't assume anything. I've seen that work out really poorly in churches where they just assume giving will go up, especially that we're in a, we've moved locations and we're in the middle of a building project. We just don't know how that plays in. So I really would actually take that seriously because if it's, you know, if we're 10% less or 5% less, we'll budget for that and that will, you know, that'll have consequences. So I just would really encourage you, um, most of you have, you know, indicated or given, but I just, we are within a few days of that. And next week, Building Hope, this is the final week. Um, there are some cards right outside the double doors there. If you have intended to give to the Building Hope, which is our, um, we'll be, we have land and we're building. If you, uh, you know, have that, that card is specifically for that project. Just put it in here at the end. Next week, the building finance team will be adding it all up. And next, next Sunday, we'll begin to tell you what's come in, what's been pledged. And um, we'll go from there. We have a, a meeting a week from Monday with um, a lot of people based on what we've given and where we are in that. So anyway, it's really exciting, but I would ask you to be sure not to put off um, whatever decisions or uh, whatever the Lord has told you to do. This morning's uh, sermon, we're, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, so you can keep your Bibles open uh, or your devices to Matthew chapter 5, but this is going to be I'm, I got a couple of things that I feel like God has uh, spoken to me, and I use that very judiciously because I don't think that, uh, while I do believe God's always communicating with me, uh, I don't usually share words that are specific unless I really feel prompted to do so. Uh, and this morning, I do have a word that's not particularly related to the sermon. I meant to share it last week, and like I really had to, like, why did I not? Because I felt like God had given it to me at the men's retreat. And I had actually put it down on my sheet, and I ended up not saying it. So I forgive me, and uh, I ask the Lord's forgiveness for that. Um, this comes out of where I think we are partly in our culture, I think, because I feel like what has happened in our culture is that now fear is a huge motivator, is that we live in a culture where we we, if we can get people to be afraid of something, we can get them to make a choice, especially as it regards if other people either get in power or are things, circumstances are dictated, and that 
Fear is used as a weapon and a tool in the hands of the enemy and also in the hands of people, sometimes with the best of intentions. I think they feel very strongly, very passionately about whether it's uh, political or social things. Here was the, I feel like the word the Lord gave me. As Christians, we have to stand against culture at many points. Sometimes we embrace and we, we can affirm what culture is doing because there are some things that we align up with. But as Christians, our first allegiance is to the gospel and is to scripture and is to the Lord. And so here's this word that I felt was for me because I'm tempted to fear, but I felt like I wanted to share with you. The word is this. It says, unsurrendered fear will lead you down the wrong road always. Unsurrendered fear. Here's, as I thought about that, and again, if, if, if somebody wants this to look at, I'm glad to email it to you. You can just send it to me. But unsurrendered fear will lead you down the wrong road, comma, always. Fear is a natural human uh, emotion, right? It's just a reaction sometimes to circumstances. But as Christians, we are, I think, called to surrender that fear and make choices not based on the fear, but based on our faith. And so when we surrender that fear and say, fear, you won't have sway over me. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus and not the fear. We surrender the fear and we defang it. Now, the two consequences for some people, if you make choices out of fear, You'll do one of two things in my mind. First, it will lead some people to make foolish choices. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in my life in a minute. And the other, and for me and maybe for some of you, even a larger gateway is it leads to a fatal passivity. Fear leads to passivity. Foolishness or passivity. And this is why I don't want to see us as a body get sucked into making decisions based on fear. When I got out of college... There was a, um, uh, and I think this happens every year. I think it's just a script they put up in May, and they say the job market after college is really hard this year. It's really hard for those of you with liberal arts degrees to come out and find a job. It's really going to be hard, you know, tough. I mean, this market is tough. 1981, just graduated from college. And I remember the headlines were screaming, job seekers just, you know, can't get jobs. You come out, you know, and here I am with a liberal arts degree and thinking, oh, I'll never get a job. I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll be on welfare lines. I don't know. I'll, I better, I better just go down and, you know, find the first job that I can get or whatever. And so, so, you know, I was rushing around and applying for the stupidest jobs, not that there's any stupid jobs, but jobs that I wasn't suited for because of fear. I was rushing around wasting my time in foolishness. Thank the Lord he didn't give me some of the jobs I applied for. Or I'd still be a toll collector or whatever I was applying for. Not that there's not dignity in toll collecting, but it wasn't my lot in life. I mean, I would be a terrible toll collector. I'd be like, oh, you don't, you don't look like having a good day. Just go on through. It's fine. I, I For other times, though, what happens is, for some of us, is that we get this fearful message, and this wasn't the case for this, but if, if the message was you'll never get a job, for some it puts us in the fetal position on the bed, and we just were like, well, I guess I just won't even try. I just won't even pursue it because it's going to be so hard. I mean, there's no jobs out there. I easily could have heard myself saying, Mom, Dad, there's just nothing out there. So fill in your blank, you know. 
There's no, no good, no good guys out there to marry. So you better just marry the first person that comes along. I mean, if they're decent, you better marry them, right? Because what our fear is will be what alone. The Lord says, you're never alone. You see, our faith needs to speak into our life of fear. If we say, what will happen if financially, if I, if I lose my job? Well, I better, I don't know. I, I, I better sue the people that, you know, let me go because I, what will I do? So we rush to foolishness or sometimes we can just rush to passivity. And the Lord, in whatever circumstance it is that you're tempted to fear, my kids won't turn out the right way. Or my parents won't turn out the right way. Or my church won't turn out the right way. Or my country won't turn out the right way. Or maybe there's not a God. Maybe this God I've trusted. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's not the God I thought he was. We begin to fear. What, what if death is the end? What if there isn't anything? And we begin to be either locked into passivity or we make foolish choices to walk in our own wisdom versus keeping the road of faith. Because it's amazing when faith enters a picture how much fear just departs. But it's a struggle, and it's an effort, and it's a battle. So the scripture I've been meditating on for low about 15 years now is John 14, 27. I mean that literally. It's one of those verses I have read, I, I can say honestly, thousands of times. Peace I leave with you, my friends. My peace I give to you. That word is shalom. Not just peace like lack of conflict. It's the health and wholeness of God. Not as the world gives do I give to you, because in the world's eyes, peace is when my team wins or there is no conflict. But in about 30 seconds, there will be conflict again, and your team will be on the edge of losing in the world's eyes. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Okay? I believe that's the word of the Lord for us as a body. It's certainly the word of the Lord for me. If you take something from that, thank the Lord. If not, pray that someone else would. Let's open to Matthew chapter 5, please. If you're, You should be already there. Thanks for indulging me in, uh, in that. The, um, we are moving from this introduction of the book of Matthew where we've been in for the last five weeks, thinking about uh, how the Old Testament is tied in to Matthew's New Testament, how he's trying to bring together the one story. It's not an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's one story of God's salvation. Matthew, we've been talking about how he brings this over and over and over again to tie these two uh, stories together into one story. And so now we reach the first of five major teaching blocks, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. If you're interested... Most people feel that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it was, was held, uh, and it's commemorated. Tradition says it was to the northwest part of the, uh, uh, Sea of Galilee. That it's not, if you think about, sometimes people think about, well, Jesus went up on a really high mountain, like a guru or something, and people were up. No, so here's, here's the, we'll, we'll show, I'll show you the, um, geography of where, where we are for those of you who like maps. And see the little tab, Tabga down at the bottom there. That's this is sort of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Jesus' hometown is Capernaum, 
And so there's a hill where it says Mount of Beatitudes. This is where most people feel he went. Here's what it actually looks like today. So if you think about what Jesus was preaching on, it's it's not exactly a mountain, right? It's, it's more of a hill. It's more of a thing. But what, what would have happened? Just imagine we have now Jesus' popularity, this uh, growing sense of people that he's somebody special and they're coming out. And so, of course, you would without amphitheaters and without um, uh, sound enhancement, you're going to try to be up high and, and in some sort of way that people could hear you speak so that people feel that he was up on looking out over the Sea of Galilee and people were on the hillside and either he was... Um, uh, in, in some way able to be seen and people were, they says he came and it says at the beginning of Matthew five that he came and he sat down. Okay. So giving a sense as to what's happening here, I believe, I think that Matthew, as I, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, is comparing Jesus to the new Moses. I see that, that he is like Moses, a teacher of the law. Mount Sinai is nowhere near this. It's way, way south. And uh, so, but the sense of Jesus delivering the law, as Moses did, from a mountain, this again would have been part of the narrative of Jews in the first century. They would have thought uh, a rabbi would have sat down to teach. That would have been a proper rabbinical posture. So when we open, when they say this detail that Matthew gives us in Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, perhaps that mountain, and when he sat down, okay, look who came to him, his See what it says? Disciples came to him. So he sees the crowd, but and it's not just 12 apostles. These are whatever group of people, but a much lesser than the crowd. But Matthew wants us to know that it is those who have committed their lives to Jesus, that they have entrusted him as their rabbi. Remember, the, the, the mode of that time would have been that if you wanted to follow someone, you would have asked to be a disciple of a particular rabbi. Jesus wasn't the only guy out there. John the Baptist had disciples, right? Many people had disciples. Typically, the disciples would come and say, may I sit under your teaching? May I follow you? May I learn how you interpret the law, Rabbi Gamaliel or Hillel? Can I be part of your team, kind of. And sometimes, occasionally, a rabbi would go and choose, but very rarely would a rabbi actually go and choose. The typical posture was for a disciple to choose a rabbi. So remember where we just came from, if you were here last week, that what we uh, looked at was um, the fact that Jesus, in beginning his ministry, We've learned two things. He's only opened his mouth and given basically one line of teaching so far. And it's in verse 17 of Matthew 4. Repent or turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly what John the Baptist said. And then what does Jesus do? He begins to go and call people to follow him. Now, typically what they were doing was calling the rabbis were um, you know, hoping the, the best students would find them. Jesus goes and finds fishermen, 
It's not that they were unintelligent, but they weren't particularly rabbinical students. This was not a traditional way that they would do it. But Jesus goes and chooses them. We ha- again, we, we may not see that because, it's, again, it's culturally it's just not something we do. But for them, for the readers of this gospel, I think it would have struck them. And so he comes and he begins to gather those that have either he's called, and those were the inner 12, and then others who now embraced Jesus and were following him. And he gathers them to himself, and he sits down among them up high, like Moses would have, and he begins to deliver the law. Now, remember what Moses' law looks like, right? It's the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God. Don't murder. Lots of great things in there. And then lots and lots of ways that we should live, ethical rules and all sorts of rules in there. Look at how Jesus begins. We call it the Beatitudes. He opens his mouth. That would have been a phrase that they would have known, again, a very specific phrase like the teacher is now speaking. He opens his mouth and he teaches them or taught them saying, and then he goes through, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And he begins to go through these beatitudes. Think about for a minute who he's saying is blessed. Makarios means to be happy, to be blessed. Who Who is it? It's not the people that we necessarily would think would be blessed, the winners, the, the, the high and mighty. It says, look, the people that are blessed are humble. They're, they're people who mourn. They're people who are meek, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. Here's the, if, if you take away nothing from this this morning, here's what I want to take away. Jesus is going to begin to set how his kingdom looks in contrast to other kingdoms. When I was uh, about 19 years old, I was, uh, wasn't quite yet panicked that I wasn't going to get a job. So I was now looking for summer jobs. And uh, I, I guess I did sort of panic because I ended up, this was down when you would do the employment office. Boy, the internet has taken that thing away. The employment office is where you would go down and you'd sit in front of a lady who would have, uh, was a lady in my case, who would have three by five cards of people who wanted help. Anybody remember that, right? You just go down. And, and so my parents sent me down because they didn't want me sitting in front of the TV all day uh, or whatever I was going to do. And they said, so go down to the employment office and ask them for a job. So I did that. And she said, oh, I have a perfect job, matches your skill level perfectly, all the experience, all the you know tools you have. You can haul brush for a tree service. Wow, one year of college has really prepared me for a life, you know, a good good career. So I worked for this tree service, and um, uh, the guy's name was Paul, who was the owner of the tree service. And um, he uh, he had set this thing up. It was his kingdom. It was definitely his uh, way of doing things. And Paul ruled by by fear and coercion. And uh, I, I have, in six weeks that I worked there, I have a lifetime of stories of uh, that I could regale you with just amazing stories. Um, let's just say um, my life experience was not quite as colorful as all of, the, of those I worked for. I learned many new words. I learned lots of stories. Um, 
I, uh, it was, it was uh, an amazing thing. Every, every Friday, no lie, every Friday at three over beers at the local Pizza Hut in Fairfax, the entire team would quit every Friday at three because we didn't get off till four. And they would all say, we're leaving this stinking job. We're never coming back again. And of course, I'm 19. What do I know? I'm just sitting there with my Coke in the Pizza Hut going, where are you guys going? Like, we're not going to go, why are we even here? Like, and then, you know, Paul would just get all furious and he would, and they'd all show up back for work at 6 a.m. on Monday and he'd yell and scream and dock them and uh, whatever. It was, it was unbelievable, right? He had built an unbelievable kingdom of fear and coercion. And I was, you know, just... It was, it was a, a revelation, an education for a 19 year old. So after about six weeks, I had a, he, he, uh, unfortunately, I think it was accidental, dropped a tree across my back. Um, and that was all right. It was a relatively small tree, but it still hurt. And, um, my parents said, enough, enough. And they called Joe, who ran an air conditioning and heating company for the second six weeks of my summer. With all my skill and experience, I had, um, you know, derived, uh, draw, th- getting brush and, uh, carrying logs. I now was fit to uh, hold someone's screws and tools to hand them for an air conditioning repairman. So I was, mo- I was moving myself up in the world. But Joe was a believer. Joe, who owned the air conditioning and heating company, was a believer. And he had set a kingdom. He had set a tone in the company where you prayed together before you started that the guys who were his techs were people of integrity. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't like they were Jesus himself, though I wanted them to be, but they weren't. But the atmosphere and the tone and everything was completely different. And I felt like I'd walked from darkness into light. Job, job was no easier, harder, or better. But what happened was a kingdom gets set. You all know that in your atmosphere, the atmosphere of your homes, the atmosphere of your workplaces, the atmosphere of your whatever, there's, there's a kingdom being set. Whether your teacher sets the kingdom, whether your, uh, the whoever rules your home sets your kingdom, the, the, the man, the woman, the two year old, whoever sets, whoever rules your house sets, sets the tone. And we live in a world where there's a clash of kingdoms. And what Jesus is trying to say is the king has arrived. And it says in Mark 4, the only thing we know of Jesus' kingdom is this, that he says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And then he says, Jesus went about demonstrating and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. For us, that phrase, we just think of maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or whatever, I did this when we went through Mark a few years ago, but let me read you an inscription from a government building that is in uh, the first century AD. So right when Matthew is being written, this is chiseled into a government building that is, uh, you know, was found and unearthed as part of an archeological dig. Here's the inscription. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection by giving us our ruler, Augustus, who, being sent to us and our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war, has set all things in order, has become God manifest, this Caesar who has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times, 
the birthday of this God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the good news, for it has come to men through Augustus. Can you see why when Matthew writes that Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom has now arrived, it is incredibly countercultural for people who would have gone by the government building and read this at the cornerstone? They say the gospel's come because a God is here. It is your emperor. And he says, oh, no, my friend. It's a lowly carpenter from Nazareth who is going to change the world. And not by ruling, but by dying. And, oh, by the way, by rising again from the dead. Jesus gathers his disciples around him on that hill. And he says, come followers of mine. Now, let's just say for us, could you sit on the hillside? Don't fool yourself. Discipleship is not like, oh, I guess I'll be a disciple and sit down. It costs you everything. It costs you your right to be right. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you love other people. More than you love yourself, you die to your own wishes. You do what I command you. You look at my word and you take it seriously and you decide it knows better than you do. Discipleship is a costly thing. So don't sit down on the hillside if you're not willing to follow him with all that you are. But if you are, he says, welcome, here we are. I'm going to describe for you this kingdom that you're going to live in and it's going to look like nothing you can imagine. And part of it, you're going to say, what? Are you kidding? Turn the other. What? If I lust after all in my heart, I've done what? Be perfect as my heavenly thought. What? Are you kidding me? And he says, yeah, you can never do this in your own strength. But I'm going to show you how to change the world. I'm going to show you how to revolutionize the world through the power of the Spirit. Sermon on the Mount was the most discouraging thing in the world to me reading when I was young because I was like, I'm never getting there. It's just too hard. Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to take you disciples and you're going to change the world in the power of the Spirit, those who will follow me. And so can we. Guys, the church, in many ways, we're in bad shape. In many ways, we've, we've abdicated, I think, the light that we've been given. We're, we're cowed into a corner. We feel embarrassed. We feel sometimes like, man, we're, just, we're, we're getting bowled over by culture. And people have ascribed to Christians things that I don't think are true of many Christians, or maybe a few, but. But I think, again, the challenge is for us to sit at Jesus' feet on the hillside and listen with, you know, just don't put our own spin on it. Let's listen to what he has to say. Next week, we're going to hear a good deal of the Sermon on the Mount read to us, memorized not by me, but by someone else who's going to bring us the unvarnished Word of God. And I want you, if you're here next week, would you bring ears to hear God's word 
and let's not even over-spiritualize it. Let's just hear what the word has to say. And if you don't think you can do it, you can come to my team because I can't either. But I believe the Holy Spirit can fill us and lead us and have us doing things we didn't think we could because I don't think God would have asked us to do things that we can't do. I think he would ask us to do things we can't do without him. Does that make sense? Finally, I just want to make two comments on this last little, these verses that Tori read to us this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste or its savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I believe, I believe the gospel is the only hope for this world. For all the injustice and all the issues that we have in our whole world, not just our culture. I I think, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer. And I believe the church is the delivery mechanism for the answer. But if, if we, you know, salt comes in, in many forms. Most of the, you know, when we think of salt, we think of the, you know, the Mortons. That's very processed, right? Salt comes in, it's a, Sodium chloride, right? All you chemistry, right? Isn't that right, Kent? Sodium chloride together and makes this element, right? But for many people, salt is uh, found in like rock and things, and the salt is mixed in, and it's not pure. And so it takes being strained like to, to can separate the salt out. And even today, you'll find that in places in the Middle East, salt when it's been separated out and you have what's left, the dregs, they take the salt and then there's just sort of a, a leftover product. And it, it actually is used, it was used even ancient times, how we use snow melt, that kind of ice snow melt trampled underfoot. Apparently, when I was reading, they actually knew of its properties and used some of that old salt even back then. They'd throw it out on roofs because they were often meeting on roofs, and they'd throw the old salt product, the, what was the remainder was, and they actually would trample it underfoot because it had the property and the quality of kind of hardening on a roof to keep it more waterproof. And you, you could actually throw out the salt product, but that salt itself can never lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is always sodium chloride. And that our job, if, as it were, our goal is to remain connected to the to the Lord and to the Word, so that our saltiness were actually Christians. Because I think what happens is too many times people, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and that's it. And then they, it doesn't translate into the way we live. We're our own worst enemies at that point, right? Our saltiness has got to be for real. It's got to be what we are. And it comes not from our effort, but it comes from being filled with the Spirit and obeying. Finally, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. But it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The only comment I want to make on that, it's a beautiful passage, it's soaring prose. In the, the book of James, 
we think about, well, gosh, okay, well, this is, this is good to do good works. And it is good to do good works. There are many good works that we can do as Christians, and it would be well served if we did them. But James, famous for talking about the tension between faith and works, talks about, so what are the good works that we do? And he says, if your brother or sister is poorly clothed, James chapter 2, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So that would be sort of traditional things that we would do in helping people, and it is a good thing. But let's move on. Let's not neglect something here. In verse 22, uh, chapter uh, 2 of James, verse 22, you see that faith was activated along with works. What works was he talking about? Well, in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Oh, okay. Feeding the poor, I get. Clothing people who need warmth, I get. Sacrificing Isaac. I mean, that's a troubling story on many levels, isn't it? Should be. Raw obedience to the command of God when it's troubling, that is as much a work. I don't know what you're being called to in your workplaces, in your homes, to obey the Lord, but Let's not give short shrift to obeying the Lord as being allied to the world as much as we would do good works to do traditional good works, which, again, very appropriate. As we close, I want to offer you one thing. We're, we are, I am not going to spend, because we have preached on it, the second half of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I call it the Klima line because Bob Klima has done a brilliant job um, kind of talking about the, all the passages that say you've heard it said that uh, you should not, you know, get angry with your brother, not kill. I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. There's a whole series of these. Well, Bob in his spare time last year wrote a book on those passages. Bob's a lawyer. It's not a novel, just so you know, but this is available like in e-format. If anyone is interested in the last, I think this is a really, really good way to look at those passages. If anybody wants to dig into it, I know a few of you have read it. Um, I will send it to you. Just let me know. It's, um, I think it's a good read, but it's for the serious, serious student of scripture. If you want to read that, I want to, Bob wanted you to know, no charge, just he said, if anyone wants to read it, that's charge enough. You know Bob. So anyway. Um, thank you for your attention in this, and especially in the word about fear. I, uh, I do believe that this is for at least some of us here. And uh, I believe that one of the ways we'll be light to the world is by not giving in to a spirit of fear. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you are so good. And you have given us, Lord, your word. And in so many ways, Lord, we, we know we have to dig in to find and, 
and look for the meaning, but we also know you've given us the Holy Spirit to quicken the word to our heart that how we are to be salt and light that you will make known to us, Lord, how the gospel of the kingdom is going to overturn our lives. Help us not to look to this world for our patterns of what's good and right. Help us to, to look first to you. Help us to see that the way you have ordained life does work if, if we'll live in a relationship with you. Lord, help us not to be religious for its own sake. Lord, help us not to think that religion has answers in and of itself. Lord, help us to know that you desire to live in relationship with us. Even though we can't see you or hear you with physical eyes or ears, you want to be to us a reality and a real presence. Strengthen us for the tasks at hand, for school, jobs, life, Lord, of all sorts. Lord, our ailments physically where we struggle, emotionally, mentally, relationally, we ask you to give us all that we need to thrive. Put away from us fear, anxiety, depression. Lord, we ask you that we would have the courage to walk in the light and the courage to do what's right, even if our hearts would tell us something else. Lord, teach us our hearts can lead us astray. They're they're wicked, Lord, unless we've been cleansed. So we ask you, Father, for your truth and your light to bring us the freedom that comes. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.